heard a story about a family who had gone over to the grandmother's house for dinner. She was making them dinner, and so uh, they were over there one evening, grandma, mom, dad, and the little grandson. And so they went over there, and they, she had made dinner, and they sat down at the table, and immediately the little grandson just started digging into the food. And the mom looked over at him, and she said, what are you doing? She said, you have to wait until we say the blessing for the food. And, and, and he said, no, I don't. And she said, yes, you do. We always say blessing for our food. We ask God to bless our food before we eat our meal at our house. And, she said, and he, the little boy said, well, that's at our house. We're at grandma's house. We don't have to ask God to bless the food because she knows how to cook. <laughs> Speaking of blessings, we are in the midst of a series called What's in Him for Me, in which we're walking through a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul gives us some blessings that we have in Christ. And they are far greater, I promise you, than the blessing of our food. But sometimes it's easy to kind of forget how blessed we are, and especially how blessed we are in Christ. And so Paul is reminding us of these foundational blessings that we have in Christ and what it truly means, what it truly means for us to be in Him, what truly is in Him for us. And so last week we looked at the first one and we talked about what it means to be chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. And there's a lot wrapped up in that phrase and that idea. And I would encourage you if you weren't here last week and if you weren't here the week before too, to go back and listen or watch some of those or watch those two uh, lessons just to kind of get an idea of where we are this morning. I do apologize because the podcast is not up. There were some technical difficulties last week, but the lesson is on YouTube if you want to go listen to that. And I would encourage you to do that if you uh, haven't done so already or weren't here last week. But we talked about that, that idea and, and all that's wrapped up in that idea of being predestined and, and chosen. But this morning we're going to look at the second blessing that Paul gives. And if you haven't done so already, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll pick up in verse 3. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves." So the second blessing we're going to talk about this morning is what Paul describes as our adoption to sonship. But before we get into that, there's something I, th I want to explain to you about it, the, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in Paul's day, very cosmopolitan, lots of people, lots of stuff going on, lots of hustle and bustle, lots of people going here, there, coming and going, doing business, lots of money traveling through there, lots of action going on. And a whole lot of immorality, including a lot of sexual immorality. And the result of that was a whole lot of unwanted pregnancies and a whole lot of babies being born who went unwanted. Sometimes it was because the baby was a girl and they valued sons over daughters. Sometimes it was because there were just too many mouths to feed. Sometimes it was because there were you know, the, the child was handicapped in some way. Sometimes it was because that child was a threat to the family inheritance because that child had been conceived through an affair. There were all kinds of reasons why you could, you know, why, why a baby would go unwanted. But the reality is in that time and that day, which is not too unlike what we're seeing now in our culture, you could just walk away from it. 
No strings attached. And during that time in the first century, people would take these unwanted babies and they would leave them outside at literally a baby dump outside the city. And abandoning babies outside the city was kind of the Ephesian way and the first century way of kind of leaving it up to the gods to decide their fate. Not the god, but the gods, the Roman gods, to decide the fate of the baby. And so, you know, you'd leave it up to the hands of the gods. If, if the baby lived, the baby lived. If the baby died, the baby died. Unfortunately, many of the babies died of exposure. And those who didn't die, many of them were picked up and claimed, but oftentimes that child would be put into some kind of slave trade or sold into bondage. In fact, I was reading about a physician that was just north of Ephesus in the city of Pergamum named Galen, and he actually wrote a manual for how to measure the dimensions of a baby to increase the odds of finding one who would make a strong slave. So that's some of the context that's going on in that culture in that time. And Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, a church that's in a culture that lives with these unwanted children and orphans walking around on the streets or in the slave trade or into bondage. And the Spirit of God speaking through Paul here in Ephesians wants to remind them that in Christ... They are precious people who are chosen and who are adopted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Father of all fathers. They may live in a culture where they are unwanted, but they are not in a relationship with a God where they are unwanted. And he's got a destiny that's far greater for them than anything that the Ephesians would have them to believe. Now, when Paul talks about adoption, it happens a little bit differently than, than typically the way we think of adoption. In our day, In our time, people generally adopt babies. So when you go to adopt, you generally adopt a baby or you adopt a small child. In Paul's day, most of the the, uh, children or most of the people that were adopted were young adults, specifically young male adults. And it didn't happen very often, but when it did happen, usually how it happened is you had a wealthy male, (coughs) a wealthy man who had no heir, he had no children, And so he didn't want his estate to be broken up by the Roman government, and he didn't want people he didn't know to get his estate and start divvying it up after he died. And so he would adopt a male, an adult male, usually someone who worked for him, who he trusted, servant, a slave who had been with him for many years. And by adopting that adult male, he made him his son and ensured that his inheritance and his lineage, so to speak, would be carried on. And the minute this legal procedure took place— their relationship was changed permanently. Now, it may be kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around why someone would adopt a slave in that culture, but even thinking about slavery is different than it was in our day, or in our day than it was in that day. Usually when I say the word slavery, we think about race-based slavery from 1700s, 1800s, started in Africa, came through Europe, came over into America. But in Paul's days, that wasn't really the case. That wasn't how slavery often worked. They tended to treat their slaves with much more dignity. Not all the time, but most of the time. They were more like indentured servants than they were slaves. And so you might have a slave servant for 20 or 30 years, and after that time, you grow close to that person. You grow close to that servant, and every now and then, a servant would be adopted. And when they were adopted, I mean, as you can imagine, that's a game changer. The the male would literally take on the name of the, 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 the heir, the person that is adopting him. And not only was he taking on the name, but he's no longer a slave. Now he is a child. 
He is a child of that person. And instantly, you'd become rich. Almost all servants, almost all slaves carried some kind of debt load. That's oftentimes why you were a slave or a servant is because you had some debt to pay off or your family had some debt to pay off. But when you became a, 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 an adopted child, when you became a, a child through adoption, your debts were wiped out by virtue of the fact that you had access now to more than enough resource, resources to pay off your debt. And again, this thing didn't happen every day, but when it did, you can imagine it's like hitting the lottery. Now, here's what's powerful. God doesn't adopt us because he's afraid of the government coming in and seizing his resources once he's gone. And God doesn't adopt us because he doesn't want people divvying everything up once he's gone. God adopts us, as Paul says, as Paul emphasizes, in love. He adopts us. He predestined us for adoption through sonship, out of love for us. Last week, we talked a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, about, ado- or about predestination and about being chosen in Christ. Again, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because it helps understand some of what we're talking about. This week, I want to focus in on that word love. Love. God, God adopts us in love. And in Paul's day, it was rather odd to talk about the God's loving human beings. Nobody talked that way. But the reason Paul talked that way is because his Lord, Jesus Christ, talked that way. And he made this connection between God and love. Not that it wasn't there before, but he made it in a very sincere and and personal way that God is love. And so verses like we read this morning with the kids, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus connects God and love. It's interesting when you read through the Old Testament, there is a picture of God as father over Israel, but it's very, it's very, select. There's not a whole lot of passages. In fact, I think there's 10 that I've found, 10 passages that speak of God as Father in the Old Testament. In the Gospels alone, Jesus refers to God as Father 156 times. Now, Jesus isn't bringing a new teaching, but he, he does change the equation when it comes to how we see God. And not only does Jesus refer to God as Father, but he calls us as his followers to refer to God as Father when we pray to him. That's how he teaches his disciples to pray. And so of all the titles that God has, Jesus tells his followers to address God as Father. Why? Because that's the the kind of relationship that he desires with us. Now, I know not everybody has the greatest picture of their earthly father, but your heavenly father is perfect. And there's a picture of, of what a father should be, and, and, and God marks all those boxes and so many more that we can't even imagine. And that's the kind of relationship that God desires with you and I. God adopts us because he wants to have a relationship with us. God is not simply out to use us for his pleasure and his will, but rather he adopts us in accordance, as Paul says, with his pleasure and his will, because his pleasure and his will is a relationship with you and me. So with that in mind, let me give you four things this morning that our adoption in Christ tells us about how God feels about you. And the first one is this, God wants you. God wants you. Some of you need to hear that you are wanted. God wants you. Nobody adopts a child they don't want. People have babies they don't want all the time. We can see that in our culture. We saw it 
They saw it in Paul's day. Nobody adopts a child that they don't want. I love what Max Lucado writes. He says, adoptive parents understand this more than anyone. Maybe that's why I like what he says, because I am an adoptive parent. But adoptive parents understand this more than anyone. I certainly don't mean to offend any biological parents. I am one myself. We biological parents know the earnest longing to have a child, but in many cases our cribs were filled easily. We decided to have a child and the child came. In fact, sometimes the child came with no decision. I've heard of unplanned pregnancies, but I've never heard of an unplanned adoption. That's why adoptive parents understand God's passion to adopt us. They know what it means to feel an empty space inside. They know what it means to hunt, to set out on a mission, to take responsibility for a child with a spotted past and a dubious future. If anybody understands God's passion for his children, it's someone who's rescued an orphan from despair, for that is what God has done for us. The reality is, there are so many people, maybe even some of you here this morning, who have allowed the experiences in our lives, the the circumstances in our lives to define us because we were rejected, we were, we were made to feel unwanted, we were abandoned, we were dumped, maybe not literally, but figuratively. Maybe it was by a spouse, maybe it was by a parent, maybe it was by an adult child, maybe it was by another family member, maybe it was by a friend, maybe it was by a company or a coworker or a boss, maybe it was by a church. And so many of us have these painful experiences and these, these, these painful memories and moments in our lives and we're still dealing with that sense of abandonment and, and being and feeling unwanted. I, I'm, I'm reminded, I don't know if I've told you this story before, but it always sticks out to me when I think about this, this idea. I'm reminded of a story that was several years ago, I think it was about eight or nine years ago, came out in several newspapers but it was out of Mumbai, India. It was a name-changing ceremony in, in Mumbai, India for these 285 girls. These 285 girls had been named uh, Nakusa, which sounds kind of innocent enough until you realize that Nakusa in their native language means unwanted. These girls were literally named unwanted. And you find that name sometimes in, in certain areas of India because they value sons more than they do daughters. And so because of that, girls that are born are either, A, they're not born, they're aborted, or they're just abandoned at an alarming rate because they just don't matter. And the ones that are let lived or let to live are sometimes named with this name unwanted. That's the picture. And so this renaming ceremony done by this community was an attempt to give these girls a new identity. And so these, these 285 girls ranging from age one all the way up to age 20, wearing their best outfits and having barrettes and bows and braided hair lined up to have their name changing certificates where they could change their name to anything that they wanted. Some of them chose names like beautiful or prosperous or good. I like one little girl. She changed her name to tough. But I say all that to say that some of us would do well to line up for a name change of our own. And I'm not talking about a formal name change. I'm talking about the way that we tend to see ourselves and define ourselves by this unwanted identity. 
And it's time to come into the light of seeing ourselves in Christ. What being in Christ means, among other things, is that as painful as your experience might have been and might still be for you, it doesn't have to define you. In fact, it doesn't define you unless you let it define you. Being in Christ means that you are wanted before you are any of those things that you've ever been or ever done. And you and I are called to live from that place of being wanted. Our worst rejections and our most painful experiences are outweighed by the glory and majesty of God adopting you. The creator of the world wants you. You know, we talk a lot about self-esteem, and that's all good and well, but I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about God-esteem. Because you see yourself from the reality that God wants you. Secondly, our adoption through Christ tells us that God planned for you. I think Max says it well. There's no such thing as an unplanned adoption. (laughs) Trust me, there's no such thing as an unplanned adoption. There are unplanned pregnancies, There are no unplanned adoptions. You are not an afterthought. You are not a plan B. You are not secondary. God planned for you. God's first work of adoption began before the creation of the universe. Think about that. And he did it, as Paul emphasizes, in love. Before the first molecule was formed, God marked us out with incomparable care. He predestined us for the great privilege of being his beloved children. Adoption is not a divine afterthought. It was in God's heart and in God's mind before the first tick of human history's clock. Adoption predates the universe itself. Only God and his love for you is bigger than your adoption. Think about that. I love what one little girl said when she was trying to explain to another little girl, and we've told this to our kids because I, I think it's so profound, but she said that adoption is, how, is that you grow in your mommy's heart instead of your mommy's tummy. I know, isn't that, isn't that awesome? And it's so profound. And the reality is that it's been in God's heart since before the creation of the world to have a plan for your adoption. And that plan was Jesus Christ, which leads me to the next thing our adoption tells us is that God paid for you. God paid a high price for you. Adoption is rarely, if ever, free. You can trust me on that as well. (laughs) Particularly uh, international adoption. It, it It is quite costly. And many of you know Marcy and I have been through the process of international adoption. We've also been through the process of of uh, domestic adoption, and we know quite a few families who have been through the process of international adoption as well. And, and many of them, including us, many of them could tell you stories about trips that were far more expensive than initially advertised. Many of them could tell you about corrupt officials changing the rules when they flew into a certain country that they thought they had a certain set of rules they were playing by, and they got there, and they changed the rules. They could also tell you stories about said corrupt officials changing the rules again by threatening them that if they didn't comply or if they they turned them in to the U.S. authorities there that they would remove the chance for them to adopt this child that they had already grown attached to. They could also tell you stories, though, of sticking it out no matter what because they're going to bring that child home no matter the cost. No one has traveled further and paid more for your adoption than God. 
maybe one of the best definitions I've heard of a father is a father is someone who carries pictures in his wallet where his money used to be. We don't carry pictures oftentimes in our wallets because we've got smartphones for that, but I love that picture because it's a picture of a man who exchanges one thing for the sake of another. And that's a picture of God who exchanged his son for you and me. We are bought because of God's amazing grace. Paul says that our adoption happens to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in Christ. Jesus is the plan, and Jesus is the place where the adoption happens because Jesus is how God paid the price for you and me. And then fourth, our adoption tells us that God claims you as his own. God claims you as his own. He doesn't just love you from afar. He doesn't just shower blessings on you from afar. He literally brings you into his family as his own son or daughter. Adoption in Paul's culture meant that someone, when they were adopted, they had every privilege of the biological child or any biological children, any privilege that they would have. And that includes a share in the inheritance. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Same language that he uses in Ephesians 1. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That the spirit testifies that you are God's child. Some of you need to listen to the spirit more than what we, what we often do. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we indeed share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And then in Galatians chapter 4, as Andrew read earlier, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God also made you an heir. And this is some of what Paul is getting at when he uses the language that he does later in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't have time to get into all the heavenly realms, but understand when Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about it here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's not just talking about heaven. Okay? And he talks about it too in Ephesians chapter 6, but we're not going to get into that. But, when, but there's more to your inheritance. Certainly, certainly the ultimate inheritance that you and I get is when we get to heaven and the eternal life that God has prepared for us. But Paul isn't just talking about heaven when he speaks of us being co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Your inheritance begins here and now. You are seated with Christ in, 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 in one sense, in the spiritual sense, here and now, starting now. So you say, well, what does that mean that, that we are co-heirs with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms? Well, for starters, it means that you have access to God, which that's kind of a big deal. 
You have access to God. That's the reason why you can pray. Something that, that sometimes we take for granted so much. You can pray because you have access to God through Jesus Christ. You, you have access to the power of God. You have access to the peace of God. You have access to the authority of God. You have access to the Holy Spirit. You're free from fear. You're free from condemnation, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You have a plan and a purpose. You, you have a hope that no one or no thing can ever take away. You have a, a family that you can lean on. I mean, we could do a whole lesson in and of itself just walking through, not even talking about it, just walking through all the blessings that you have in Christ. I can't go through them all this morning. That's why you got to read this stuff for yourself. The will is all in here, but you got to read it for yourself. I do love what one person said, though. He said, no man is poor who is heir to all the riches of God. And a lot of those riches you and I have access to right now. It's not just all waiting for us in heaven. We're not, the, the call is not to sit around singing kumbaya, waiting for Jesus to return or to, uh, for us to, to die in the meantime. We live out of what we've been given and the inheritance that we've been given right now. That's why it's, it's possible for you and I to do the things that we do and live the way that we live because God has given us those things. It's easy for us to, to see that word inheritance or see that word heir and we think, well, that's the stuff that we get when we get to heaven. But that's not always the case. Oftentimes, it, it's talking about something that you and I have access to right now because someone has already died to give you access to it right now. You think about it. What do you have to do to get your inheritance? Do you die to get your inheritance? No. Someone else dies for you to get your inheritance. And someone else has died so that you can have access to something right now that can make a difference in your life today, right now, on this side of eternity, not just on the other. Again, that's why it's possible for you to have the power to change because you have access to the power to change right now. That's why it's possible for you to have peace even in the midst of adversity, even when there's so many things going on that the world says there's no way you should have peace in the midst of this, but you can because you have access to the peace of God right now. This inheritance is concrete stuff that makes a difference in the way that we live right now. Now you see why Paul responds the way he does. And this, these verses 3 through 14 are just this outpouring of worship for what God has given to us. There are things that he knows that chains can't touch. He may be in prison and he may be in chains, but he's not limited by them because there's things that those things, those chains cannot touch. There's things that Rome cannot take away. He knows who he is because he knows he is chosen. He knows who he, what he has because he knows that he has been adopted and he knows, well, you'll have to come back next week to the third one but I'll give it to you, I promise. So as we close our time this morning, let me just really quickly give you two things when it comes to the difference this reality of knowing who we are and what we have can make in our lives. And the first one is this, knowing who you are and what you have helps you to realize that your worth comes from your position in Christ, not from your performance. Your worth comes from your position in Christ, not from your performance. Your worth doesn't come from your job or your bank account or your status or, your, uh, or uh, how others think of you or your material possessions or your abilities or your talents or whatever you want to fill in the blank. I'm not saying those things are bad, but that's not where your worth comes from. 
And all too often, our self-worth is based on those things or the lack thereof those things. And we define ourselves and the worth that we have, the value that we have by what others tell us we ought to value ourselves by or what we do or don't have or what we can or can't do or what we have or haven't done. But despite what the world may tell us and despite what they may try to convince us of, your worth is not found in any of those things. Your worth is found in being a child of God adopted through the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And even your worth as a child of God is about your position in Christ, not your performance. You don't have to try and earn a relationship with God. Some of you this morning, you're trying to earn it. You may not know it, you may not even mean to, but you're trying to earn God's favor. You're trying to earn God's salvation, which is not possible, and frankly, it's exhausting. And some of you are burnt out because you've been trying to earn it. You've been trying to fill in the checklist, and and Christianity is just a, a burden on you. Following Jesus is a burden, but there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to earn the grace, the gift of grace that God has given you. There's nothing you can do to earn a relationship with God. You can't be good enough. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. You are received and adopted by God, not on the basis of your performance or how good you are or how many rules you do or don't keep. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. But it's given to you through Christ and your position in him. Along those lines, secondly, knowing who you are and, help, and, and, and what you have helps you realize that you live to proclaim who you are in Christ, not to prove who you are. You live to proclaim who you are in Christ, not to prove who you are. Do you see the difference there? Listen to what Paul says in the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 4 that we ought to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received in Christ Jesus. Then he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, We pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Again, you can't earn God's favor, okay? Can can we just at least agree on it, even if you can't intellectually totally believe that? You cannot earn God's favor or grace, but you certainly do live in it and from it. And living in it and from it means that we live a life that reflects that grace being present in our lives. There's nothing you can do to earn it, but you certainly do live from it. You live out of it. We live a life that's worthy of the calling, the adoption that we have received through Jesus Christ, a life that's worthy of the Lord and pleases him in every way, as he says in Colossians 10, a life that bears fruit in every good work and grows in our relationship of the Lord, uh, with the Lord and, and his desire for our lives. When people see our lives, they ought to see the family resemblance. When people see our lives, they ought to see Jesus Christ in us. But the key is we don't live that way to prove we're worthy enough to be in Christ. We live that way because we already are in Christ. Because we have been given the gift of grace and adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. We proclaim that grace in our lives. Now understand, even when we fail to truly realize who we are and what we have, we can still do good things. We can still look the part, so to speak. 
where, where we look the part and we know the right things to do and we do them and we still live in some measure of obedience to God. But the problem is we're doing those things not to, to proclaim necessarily who we are in Christ, but to prove who we are. To look the part. To put on the facade. And we may do the right things on the outside, but it's more of an attempt to earn God's acceptance or maybe to get him off our back, so to speak, or, or maybe to get someone else off our back. And so what happens is we end up relating to God more as wage earners than we do as adopted sons and daughters. Does that make sense? But the reality is that wage earning is not from the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace truly is good news because it speaks to us of a father's love who has come to us freely in Jesus Christ. We already sang the song. We're going to sing it in a little bit at the end of services today. Jesus loves me, this I know. Everybody in here probably has heard that song. Well, you definitely have because we just sang it a while ago, but it is so simple, and yet it's so profound, and it can make all the difference in the world. Because understanding that foundational truth shapes whether or not you and I live as wage earners or we live as adopted sons and daughters basking in the love of our heavenly Father that is poured out to us through Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important for you to know who you are and what you have. That you are wanted. You're wanted. You need to tell yourself that this morning. You you are wanted. You were planned for. You're not an accident. God planned for you before the creation of the world. And he paid a, a huge price for you so that he can claim you as his own. Because knowing who we are and what we have can make all the difference in the world inside of you. And it sets you up to make all the difference in the world around you.